You're listening to What Mad Universe on the Greenlit Podcast Network. Check out all our shows at greenlitpodcast.com. Action, excitement, horror, romance, thrills and chills, swords and sorcery, rockets and ray guns, a dizzying panoply of the strange and impossible from the darkest depths of the human imagination. What Mad Universe encompasses such tales as these? Join us as we bear witness to the sweeping sprawl of all the history that never was and all the futures that could yet be. It's adventure as you like it on What What Mad Universe. to uh what mad universe we are not quite back we're still uh we're still on our the middle of our summer break and uh taking our time off between seasons for uh, to lounge on the beach as people need uh but uh we are the beach uh, that makes you old uh, that'll be dated that in a couple weeks but uh. <laughs> nobody will remember that movie in a couple <laughs> weeks but at least that's see we had to get an episode out so we could comment on the beach that makes you old that's the important <laughs> thing um but yeah, we're we're just wanted to duck in quickly and remind you that we are here and that What Mad Universe is coming back for uh, a third season. I'm Adam Prosser. With me, as always, is Philip Rice. Hello. And uh, yeah, so this is just going to be a, a sort of a makeshift, informal uh, preview episode, which was something we did last season as well. Uh, we're going to just have a quick look at sort of what we might be doing in the coming season uh, in the coming year. Uh, when we come back, it will be at the end of September or the beginning of October, depending on how it falls. And um, we're just going to put out ideas. Uh, we do reserve the right to uh, to uh, change some of these or not do some of these, but this is uh, this is sort of a description of what we're thinking for last season. Uh, last season went pretty well, you'd say, right, Phil? Uh, yep. Yeah, it was. It was. Uh, I think we were. I think we we did pretty well. People seem to enjoy our. Uh, our, our, uh, our series on, uh, you know, spinoff episodes, spinoff of, uh, novel of movies and TV shows, novels. Um, and, uh, so we're going to do another series of, of, well, uh, of, of shows that are thematically linked. Uh, what I wanted to do was to delve into, um, steampunk and cyberpunk and sort of trace the origins of those two with the seminal books of those two genres, as we might say, um, which uh, is going to probably uh, mean... Uh, so, of course, we're going to look at Neuromancer, because that's the original cyberpunk novel. Uh, we're probably going to look at um, um, some of the original texts of steampunk, which include Warlord of the Air by uh, Michael Moorcock, uh, which uh, we haven't read yet. You've had, you haven't read that, right, Phil? Nope. No. It's um, <clears throat> it, it's steampunk, and it's actually uh, I'm sure we'll get into this in the episode itself. But you know, steampunk is a little bit hard to pin down because it's just people writing retro sci-fi. So there's the question of like, is Jules Verne steampunk because he was yeah, just writing? I mean, 
Yeah, yeah uh, usually it's it's the idea of looking back at the past and recontextualizing things with the aesthetics of that time. But right. like it's really like steampunk is often very like has a lot of fantasy elements. Um, mm-hmm. um, yeah, and I, I believe um, Warlord of the the time streams like goes through different realities and stuff. So like there's dimension hopping and stuff. Mm-hmm. Yes, uh, Warlord of the Air is the first in the Nomad of the Time Stream trilogy. Right, that's right. Which also and includes Land Leviathan and the Steel Czar. So, um, yeah, I don't know what those are about. I don't know if they're also steampunk, but yeah. Right. And uh, there's a couple of other books. There's one called um, uh, uh, Morlock Knight. Which is by uh, a guy named uh, named um, K W Jeter, uh, which is apparently often considered to be kind of a major uh, turning point for that. Uh, World of the Air was uh, seventy oh seventy one, uh, so that World of the Air probably has the best claim at being the first steampunk novel. But the thing is, I think the term steampunk actually came from Jeter, not from Moorcock. Uh, we'll, we'll get into this, of course, but. Um, it sounds like. How do you feel about? Because uh, apparently the Gormenghast series, the third novel, has is considered a proto steampunk thing. That's interesting, and and it's funny because I've read the first two Gormenghasts and I haven't read the third one, so I don't know quite. That's that is an interesting thing. I might have to read it and see how we can compare to that. Um, it's it's almost it seems like it's almost more surrealist. Uh, in that it sort of puts aside the concept of like linear time and fantasy world building. Um, yeah, but apparently the third one has like a clockwork city or or like a steam powered city or something like that. Yeah, yeah, that's this is just sort of what I've heard. I haven't looked too right. deeply into it. Um, yeah, the idea is that you know the first two Gormenghast are sort of set in a, in a medieval fantasy world, and he basically escapes Gormenghast, and suddenly the world is a bit more. Uh, closer to what was then, because they were written in, I believe, the 1930s, so they were closer to, you know, oh, so the it's, then modern it's, world. It's another M. Night Shyamalan movie, The Village, to spoil <laughs> that one. Um, <laughs> well, no. <laughs> yes and no. <laughs> yes. He doesn't go out and be like, "Oh my God, it's a, it's a, it's New York or whatever." But yeah, <laughs> sorry, and sorry, the uh, the Titus. Uh, Titus Alone is the book we're talking about, the third uh, the third novel, and that's actually fifty nine, but nineteen fifty nine. But I think it was posthumous, so I'm not. Uh, but yes, apparently that is considered sometimes to be steampunk. Uh, what's interesting about steampunk to me is that um, this is again something I want to get into in the episodes itself. There's actually kind of two or three different little subgenres that get classified as steampunk because there's. Um, like, there's the idea of writing retro sci-fi. Like, you're writing in the modern day, but you've got, you know, steam-powered or clockwork-powered or, or you know, pseudo-Jules Verne fiction or whatever. Um, so it's, it's, it's a pastiche. But then you also have um, what's, what you sometimes see, which is fantasy, but it wants to have technology that it's a higher level than medieval technology. Um, so you'll see, like, and, and it feels a little more natural, I guess, in some ways to have clockwork or, or steam-powered or, or something a bit more uh, retro-seeming than literally giving them computers and, and yeah. uh, automobiles. So, like, um, uh, to give a popular example, um, Avatar The Last Airbender, the first... Uh, like, Korra goes more into diesel punk, but, like, there's a lot of steampunk elements in, in Avatar introduced right. throughout the series. Like, the, the Zeppelins and the... the uh, mm-hmm. um, 
you know, like high tech, like high technology, but with a sort of retro feel. Right. Yeah. That's that's that. Uh, there's also the China Meaville um, series, the Baslog series, starting with Perdido Street Station, which uh, it's a it's explicitly a fantasy world, and it has a lot of the sort of rules we'd expect of a fantasy world. There's even literally a dungeon crawl of adventures at one point, but it is set in a world that's closer to. Like, it's not specifically based on any era. It's, it's, in some ways, it's medieval, in some ways, it's kind of Victorian, and in some ways, it's kind of modern. But it has things like subways and, and, uh, automatons and, and things like that. And they're all kind of retro, steam powered or, or clockwork powered kind of stuff. Um, but that just makes it seem more, unreal and more like a fantasy world it, it detaches it from our world and you know if it was literally just a city with subways but all the names were different it might not feel as fantastical as it as it does uh in that way so that's kind of a separate subgenre, but it's still yeah. what's usually called steampunk well then there's the third one the third uh the third option, which is literally just people wearing like sexy clothes and yeah, I was going to say uh, steampunk as an aesthetic, like um, right, or even in like uh, um, say movies or TV shows, will have like a steampunk aesthetic for something, even though the story's not steampunk. Like uh, think of the Doctor Who TV movie from the nineties, where his um, uh, the TARDIS interior is like modeled on like Victorian style things. Right. Like it's not right. a steampunk story, but like there's clearly mm -hmm. steampunk influences in the design. Right. Yeah, and it's it's um, it's I'd say Doctor Who has always had a bit of a steampunk vibe to it in many ways. Um, and uh, you know it sort of goes back and forth. But yeah, it's yeah. It's, um, and I'm the, I'm also interested in the various because uh, this is fairly recent actually categorizing the different, you know, punks, so to speak, you know, you right. down yeah. to like really specific, like there's a, a difference between steampunk and clock punk and there's um, like P uh, diesel punk. I, I really like diesel punk aesthetics, mm -hmm. you know, like the Rocketeer right. and like the, the first, um, the, mm -hmm. the Captain America, the first Avenger and uh, right. um, uh, Sky Captain in the World of Tomorrow. I think it's a really fun aesthetic that 1930s yeah. thing i even have a, a comic set mostly set in that time period right. um but what's but, interesting uh, about that actually to me is that um the, the, we use the word punk like cyberpunk came along because it had this sort of uh, obviously punk rock attitude to it it was sort of a very it was about subcultures and it was about sort of uh you know taking a punk rock attitude of, of yeah like fighting surrealism. against a system and yeah and explicitly anti-capitalist in a lot of cases and yeah but also taking a, a very like um you know to heck with reality attitude it, like there's a like a level of surrealism and purple prose and, and attempting to sort of transcend just it, it's almost the descendant of what we talk what we've talked about with the uh the new wave of science fiction um it, it's sort of the next branch of that where the, the emphasis is on the writing and the and the uh, the stylistic and the aesthetics, rather than um, than like detailing how the sci-fi works or how the science works. Um, but when you translate that into steampunk, it's not as concerned with the quote punkiness of it, except it sometimes it is. Like I, I just mentioned those different branches of it. So if you, if you're doing like a retro, you know, uh, League of Extraordinary Gentlemen thing, the punk area aspect of it isn't necessarily as strong. Whereas if you're doing something like, as I said, pretty well, I disagree station, in that. A particular example, because League of Extraordinary Gentlemen does have an anti-authoritarian bent to a lot of it, uh, which makes sense considering the author. I mean, I feel like um, 
the, like the stuff with the, uh, I don't want to spoil it, but yeah, uh, um, the well, there's two there... volumes I feel like have, have a very, um, like, uh, you know, government sucks and <laughs> yeah, yeah, no, absolutely. Well, yeah. So, so there's a distinction here between the politics and the actual stylistic approach in the world building like to yeah. what degree are you trying to mesh with the pastiche of victorian era science fiction and to what degree are you trying to make something that's kind of new but draws a bit on that 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 general feeling which again that's like doctor who and that's um you know the china meville books so those are you know it's not so much although the politics are usually anti-authoritarian there as well but but then you have something like i, I just you, you, i use league of extraordinary gentlemen because in many ways it's just a, a retro adventure story yes it's got stuff going on uh in the in the actual you know politics and the, and the themes but it's not radical like he's literally using characters who existed in the 19th century yeah. so he's not deviating too far from what we think of as retro science fiction that that's all i mean with that um mm. anyway and so yeah i have i have and then I, by the I'm, time you I'm get not i'm not too familiar with with modern steampunk uh directly but i have read some essays um with people complaining about how a lot of it um tends to um because you like the aesthetics um and you like the 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 period you know the, the general victorian aesthetics but like the victorians were like terrible in right. terms of a lot of issues, uh, mm -hmm. you know, colonialism and stuff, and a lot of uh, steampunk doesn't grapple with that. Some does, though, so that that'll be interesting to look into. Yeah, for sure. So yeah, anyway, let's uh, let's not yeah, let's hold some back a bit more of that back for the actual uh, discussions of the thing. But I did want to say that like when you get into like diesel punk, that whole uh, like e either the you know political the punk rock politics or the idea of making it just completely weird and off the wall, uh, those both kind of fizzle out. With diesel punk, it's just, it's pure retro, right? Like, you know, and, and, and I'm not using that as a criticism, but it, the, the punk at, at yeah, affixation yeah. Um, doesn't seem to apply anymore by that point. Yeah, yeah, and, and yeah. it, like, so it, it depends, biopunk seems to be fairly punky still, like mm -hmm. body hacking and stuff. And right. Yeah, like, more, that, that's its own, its own, um, yeah, that seems to have a lot of, uh, the, the initial, uh, punk rock aspects of, right. of cyberpunk and stuff, but a lot of the, the offshoots like clock punk and stuff are, are mostly about the aesthetics or the, you know, general time period or the style of storytelling from that time period. And I don't think mm -hmm. that's necessarily a bad thing, but it's, mm -hmm. um, it's just yeah, an interesting thing to think about. It can be fun for sure, but yeah, yeah. It's a, there's also solar punk, although that's less of a oh, literary thing and a yeah, uh, yeah. I haven't seen uh, that. That's a good point. Uh, a lot of them are just aesthetics. Uh, I do like right. solar punk. It's got uh, and it does have a. It also has a political aspect since it's inherently right. about uh, green energy and you know, right, um, right, exactly. Building a world that's um, uh, not destroying the environment. <laughs> But right, still, exactly. you know, is keeping yeah. up with our needs and that sort of thing. So yeah, it's a utopian uh, attitude. Yeah, and then of course there's hope punk. <laughs> that's not anything. <laughs> I know that's not a thing. I, I hated that article that. so much, but yeah, like, if you can include, you know, like uh, what what did it? it? It included Mad Max Fury Road. <laughs> yeah, it's it, it made no sense at all. It was obviously. it was way too broad to mean yeah, anything. Yeah. 
yeah, yeah. It it was just uh, yeah, that was a bit silly, but it it it, it and of course we're the only people who remember it at this point. So our, <laughs> us in our circle. So oh, there's also anyway. um, I I don't think it has a name. I I tend to refer to it as Max Punk, but the Mad Max right. aesthetic that um the, that George Miller sort of invented, but it became a whole thing like the wasteland aesthetic. Yeah, the I mean post-apocalyptic. Yeah, uh, but, may, but I guess speci- you're but specifically that kind of like. I don't know, uh, like... Yeah, junk, de- fu- yeah. junk salvage future kind of thing. Yeah, and, and it and, has a and, DIY aspect which fits with the original punk subculture, so that, right. yeah. But, I mean, and, and Mad Max is so heavily, like, the inspiration for it that, you know, you can't... <laughs> you kind of keep going back to Mad Max, specifically, uh, when when other, uh, other series... Uh, draw on it, and of course it is a whole thing, but, you know, yeah, it's it's definitely very much Mad Max knockoffs. The, yeah, I were, like, apparently the Australian film industry for quite a while, like, you couldn't make a movie that wasn't a Mad Max knockoff. Like, mm-hmm. there was a post-apocalyptic Australian uh, movie about billiards. <laughs> and, like, if you, if you, like, lost, you got your fingers chopped off or something. So, like, it's extreme billiards. But it's still, it's a game about pool. <laughs> no, that's just how things are in Australia. That's just, it's, a, it's a, just a true slice of life. Oh, yeah, that, that's um, that, that's a gag. I, I think a friend of the show, Charlotte Finn, said that um, the um, uh, Mad Max Fury Road is just what Australia looks like in the Mad, in the uh, Fast and Furious movies. Yeah, exactly. Like, it, like, Currently, like that's just what Australia currently looks like. I've actually <laughs> used that uh, in my uh, my comic that current day Australia has the Mad Max aesthetic because they got uh, anyway. <laughs> yes. Anyway, let's. Uh, so yeah, just to quickly go over some of our other ideas. Um, there's a couple of big. Um, I don't want to say omissions, but big ones that we haven't tackled yet. Um, we're we're definitely going to look at Arthur C. Clarke's Childhood's End. Uh, which is a big, big one, I think. Um, that, and I mean, we haven't really talked about Arthur C. Clarke at all, uh, even though. And it's funny because he is even more so than people like Isaac Asimov and Robert E. Heinlein, who I've seen people argue that they've faded from importance. Uh, but Arthur C. Clarke really has. Like, you don't hear people talking about Arthur C. Clarke except in the context of 2001: A Space Odyssey anymore, or uh, Clark's but, Law, which comes up a right. Lot. Yeah, well, that's true. That's true. Um, but Childhood's End was a very seminal uh, science fiction story, and it, from what I've seen, and I haven't read it yet, but it sounds like it it does have a major uh, impact on a lot of science fiction. Like it was, it had a few ideas that carried on into uh, a lot of uh, science fiction after that. So uh, we'll be having a look at that. Um, we want to tackle. There's two series we kind of like to tackle. Uh, one is The Lensman. Uh, we actually want, we've been wanting to do that one for a while. We have to sort of wait until we can uh, read through the entire series because there's seven books of them. Yeah. Um, but yeah, Lensman is, um, for those of you who don't know, it's, uh, well, Phil, you want to you describe it? Uh, well, I've on, I'm only partway through the first book. <laughs> but just I in am, terms of what, yeah, how it, it it's, plays it's a role. A, in. It's an um, early uh, example of a space opera setting. Um and it's about a intergalactic police force who all have the same powers. So it, it was a direct inspiration on the Silver Age reimagining of the Green Lantern concept. Right. Yeah. That's that's I think why people remember it generally is because it it's about they have essentially power rings that um, 
that aren't exactly like the Green Lanterns, but they're the, it's the same general idea. Uh, there's a special elite force that are given these power rings in order to bring yeah. law and, and order to the galaxy. So, like the original Green Lantern was just one guy who had a magic ring, um, mm-hmm. and when they reimagined it as a science fiction concept in the in the uh, late 50s, early 60s, uh, they sort of just took the look of what Green Lantern could do. You know, he had a ring that could make green things. Um, and um, sort of just stuck that into the, the lensman sort of setup. Right. right. Yeah, it's the it's the, the milieu of, you know, space. They're called space cops, but I feel like the Green Lantern has never been space cops to the degree that they're usually they're usually called that. Uh, but, it depends. Uh, it, yeah. it goes back and forth, but yeah. Mm-hmm. I mean, the fact that for most of their history, they, like, the rings literally can't kill, so. Right. Which changes, but yeah. Mm-hmm. But at the same time, it's yeah. Anyway, it is it is definitely a a model sort of uh, uh, pre World War II space opera type. Uh, model, yeah, and it's is, by uh, Doc Smith, who was like a, a. I mean, this is probably his best known thing, but he did a lot of early building up of the space opera subgenre. Right. So you know that's. I have read his um, Space Hounds of IPC, which was interesting. Uh, what um, does IPC stand for? Uh, international or er, um, intergalactic something patrol. Planetary I don't know. Planetary cosmos. Yeah. Yes. <laughs> it's, you know, it's I. It's yeah. been a while, but uh, mm-hmm. it. Uh, I read it because it's like from the uh, late forties, early fifties, but it uh, fell into the public domain, so it had um, some usable concepts and one of the few science fiction things that deals with Jupiter as a setting. So mm-hmm. I, I, that's why I looked into it. Um, <clears throat> it has the premise that uh, each one of the planets uh, produces uh, humanity, but because of the different conditions on the planet, they uh, humanity will evolve in different directions. Mm-hmm. Um, so, like the Martians, they look completely different, but they're they're human stock that just sort of evolved in a different direction. Um, mm-hmm. And uh, it and. Uh, uh, Jupiter and all of the moons of Jupiter all have um, uh, variations on a species called the Haxons, who are like really hostile to all other life forms. Hmm. Cool. Anyway, yeah. Well, well. Okay. Well, that's cool. That's something we can talk about again in that episode. Um, another big, classic, well-known work that we wanted to tackle. Uh, that this was, uh, which Phil's already read, I believe, um, is the Scarlet Pimpernel. Yeah, right. I, I've read the first book. Uh, let's see, week before, yeah, last week. Uh, finished it up recently, um, and after that, discovered that there's a really long series by the original authors. So uh, I'll try to read as many as uh, those as I can. Yeah, um, and of course that's significant because it's sort of the one of the two real origins of the uh, the sci- the uh, superhero. Yeah, um, I think I think it's a little overblown when people say it's the first superhero, um, because there are precedents. I, I I think superhero is too malleable a concept to mm-hmm. say there's ever been a first. Like you could fit Heracles, you know, from Greek mythology right, into the right. roles, it you know, yeah. without much problem, and they have mm-hmm. done that in Marvel. Um, mm-hmm. I think DC has yeah, DC has a Hercules too. Um, sure. I but, mean, Gilgamesh um, is a superhero. He's like the yeah. oldest hero known to mankind. <laughs> yeah, yeah. yeah. Um, so, um, 
but it, it has a lot of the uh, a lot of early versions, if not the first, then popularizing of a lot of the tropes, uh, like the the secret identity that's like um, mm-hmm. he intentionally plays himself up as a foppish idiot, so people don't think that he's you know got more going on. Mm-hmm. Right, exactly. Um, that's that's the element I think that is mostly original to Scar- well, not originally. Yeah. Even that isn't totally original, but it's the one that really locked it in as something that's yeah. part of the superhero yeah. genre. And the the first book, uh, just to briefly, um, it's mostly written from his wife's point of view, who's discovering who discovers over the course of the novel who he is, mm-hmm. um, and which is interesting because it's like it's like a Superman story written from the point of view of Lois Lane. Yeah, but like yeah. where we don't get cutaways like Superman, you know, Clark Kent changing into Superman. We only find that out halfway through. Right. I mean, I I knew who Scarlet Pimpernel was through cultural osmosis, but um, you know, uh, for a first, if you were reading for the first time in 1905, um, that might have been an actual surprise. I don't know. <laughs> yeah. Very cool. Yeah. That's. Um, uh, it, it also has really unfortunate politics because. Right. This whole thing is saving aristocrats from the guillotine, which right. um, yeah. you know you, you could you could argue about you know how far they were going and stuff, but I don't know. There's uh. yeah, yeah. No, no, no. F- that's fair. Um, again, we'll we'll we can have a whole discussion about that on the the episode itself. But yeah, yeah that's uh, that's definitely uh, one of the things, and it's it puts it apart from other characters like Robin Hood and Zorro, who are kind of the the, su- the model superheroes because those are you know they they're champions of the people right but yeah uh, though uh, both are often portrayed as lords or rich in their own right but right, yeah right. in this case uh, Scarlet Pimpernel is explicitly saving aristocrats and it is right. framed uh, at least in the first book is um, he's only sort of doing it for moral reasons it's mostly for the sport of it um, mm. which I thought was uh, a little bit redeeming though then mm. it got really anti-Semitic in the last act so. Uh, <laughs> Well, we'll see how the rest of the books uh, stack up. <laughs> All right, like well, we'll really anti-Semitic. That. Like it got yeah. really uncomfortable there. But yeah. Anyway, so yeah, um, so just to yeah, again, we've got um, we've got quite a few possibly on the docket. We have to yeah, I want to do uh, Venus in Five Seconds, which is right. a, a short um, novel, a parody of uh, planetary romance from the time when that was a popular genre. Um, yeah. So it's from the late 1800s, and it's parodying contemporary science fiction, which I thought was interesting. Um, it's a, it's yeah. a very, uh, it's a funny book. It's intentionally very weird and uh, right. Yeah, we've we've kind of seen a little bit of that with the um, the uh, with Saturday for Ant- your your boy Saturday for Ant- Yeah, uh, yeah, but and this yeah, is actually it's... after that. So you know, again, Saturday yeah. for Randall got there first, but. Um, <laughs> Um, what can yeah, it's, Saturday it's got, and Randall do? It's got, um, it's also got uh, one of the first, I mean, in the book, the Egyptians have teleporting technology. The ancient Egyptians had teleporting technology, which wound them up on Venus. Um, mm-hmm. But it's I knew betray- it. Crazy people. Cr- regular yeah. theories a million. Crazy theories one. Exactly. It's, it's um, the Egyptians invented the teleportation technology, and that's how they met aliens. Which is literally that Futurama joke where the uh, yeah. Egyptian planet um, actually learned all this stuff, including space travel, from the Egyptians, which yeah. I thought was a really amusing uh, reversal of the ancient alien stuff. Right. Okay, so there you go. <laughs> Futurama stealing jokes from a hundred and twenty year old. This has uh, a lot of 
This has a lot of uh, precursors to things that would happen later, but I don't think anybody read it. Like, it's a very obscure book. Um, I, I actually have a story about me trying to track it down. It's only recently been available online, so... Um, okay, well, um, we'll get I, to that when we talk about the episode. Yeah. We'll talk about the book, but uh, yeah. Yeah. Gotta, gotta save some of that sweet, yeah, sweet yeah. Uh, material for when we do the, show, the book itself. Yeah, just uh, teasing, but, I have a personal story in uh, in regards to this novel. Uh, very good. And, uh, I also uh, yeah. want to do, yeah, there, I mean, there's some other ones. Um, the I'd Dying like Earth is a big one. That, that's, yep. That is one that I'd really like to, uh, because that's been a huge influence on a lot of stuff, um, including Dungeons and Dragons, apparently, but, um, but also just the whole far future uh, sci fantasy idea is coming from that. So that's going to be uh, very, very crucial, I think, um, for, for science fiction. So that's a big uh, lacuna in what we've discussed. So we're going to tackle yeah. that one. Uh, yeah, one that I want to do that um, uh, is a little off format for us, but I think it would be interesting, is The War Eagles, um, which is, um, the, the War Eagles was a movie that was proposed by the, uh, or like scripted, and they had all this pre-production stuff, by C. Marion Cooper, who was the creator of King Kong. Uh, this was going to be in the late 30s, um, and uh, it was... Uh, it's another sort of adventure story that would have involved lots of special effects. Uh, it's about a pilot who ends up in the North Pole. He meets a tribe of Vikings and who ride giant eagles. And the last act would be the uh, giant eagle riding Vikings versus Nazi Zeppelins over the skies of New York. And the movie was canned initially uh, because uh, Hollywood didn't want to upset the Nazis because they were right. still um, relying on the German... Um, um, box office for right. for profits. Uh, yeah. This was before America entered the war, and it's never been made, but uh, somebody did a uh, novelization, like, fairly recently of the original script, so I'd like oh, to okay. read that. That's what I was going to ask, like, yeah, did the yeah. script get made and, and, and everything? Okay. Yeah, that's, that's so cool. the closest we have is a novelization of the script, which huh. I, I think would be interesting to read, and also yeah. I'd, I'd be looking at, there's also a book on um, the history of the production of it that I'd want to go into. Okay, sounds really cool, yeah. When you say the War Eagles, I just assume a standard war movie, and then it's actually about giant eagles, apparently. So yeah, kind of cool. uh, written by Vikings, yeah, it's it's a weird thing. <laughs> yeah, um, I like. I always like Vikings versus Nazis, because I like the, the whole Vikings being like, F you, Nazis, we're not. <laughs> yep, yep. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> and, um... Okay, yeah, and, and we've got, um, what, what's Breckenridge Elkage? Elkins? Oh, that's, um, uh, that's another Robert E. Howard character. Um, right, right. This right. one's a, uh, more of a comedic stories of a uh, hillbilly, mm -hmm. uh, a mountain man who has super strength, but he's dumb. Right. But, like, good-natured, apparently. I haven't so read them, but apparently they're... I mean, it's Robert E. Howard, so... Yeah. Right, right. Well, that may be... That sounds very much like it might be an inspiration for uh, for Lil Abner and uh, and and similar stuff, because uh, the, 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 the hillbilly with super yeah. strength became a, I mean, a trope in, in comics and cartoons for a while. It might, so. might also be interesting to uh, contrast it with uh, Silver John, who's a hillbilly, right. but he uses his wits, so mm -hmm, yeah, that's mm -hmm. interesting. And then the one other uh, major thing that we've got on the docket, again, we've probably got other, th obviously we're going to have other things, uh, but w I, I really want to look at uh, Fantas Fantastes, 
by George MacDonald, um, who's the author of The Princess and the Goblin. He was a uh, 19th century uh, uh, fantasy writer. Um, this is apparently significant because it's been cited as the first fantasy where they do sub-creation. Uh, that is, they build like a world that has functional rules instead of just being, you know, a fairy tale world or a world that you know obeys whatever the whatever the basic rules that the the author needs you know or something like Robert E Howard again where he you know he just sort of transposes a historical era and sands off a few differences and throws in some cosmic horror or whatever this is literally like sort of the the, the trial run for Lord of the Rings I think uh, again we haven't read it so uh, I don't want to make too many bold claims but it is apparently frequently cited as that yeah, I haven't read this one, but I have read uh, The Princess and the Goblin, which is a fun mm -hmm. children's story, but yeah. Yeah. Yeah, his book his books are considered kids' books, mostly, uh, but uh, this may be a little bit more adult, but I'm not sure. Anyway, he was, mm -hmm. a, he was a, if I'm not mistaken, he was a reverend, uh, so, uh, you know, it's probably not going to get too edgy. <laughs> but, uh, yeah. Yeah, I guess not going to go the Jurgen route of, you know, lots of dick jokes. <laughs> yes. Well, remember, Jurgen got Jurgen got into trouble for uh, yep, yeah, for sure uh, obscenity trials. So at the yeah. time, so oh, uh, also uh, Super Folks, which I've um, uh, started reading but would like to finish, which is a Superman parody from the seventies. Uh, that's right. often cited as a precursor to Watchmen and, and other stuff mm -hmm. that sort of looks at superheroes in a real world setting. Though it's not quite right. that. Yeah. And to, to be clear, that's a novel, not a comic book. Yeah, uh, it's a novel, yeah. yeah, yeah. Um, but it, uh, with Watchmen, a lot of people point to uh, um, uh, Squadron Supreme by uh, Mark Runewald um, as like a precursor to that, but Super Folks is even older. So, yeah, mm -hmm. it might be interesting okay. looking at those. Cool. Yeah, that's definitely one to check out. So you've got as you so yes, as you can see, we've got a lot on the docket for next year uh, when we come back. But and and so one of the things we were going to try, uh, I, I, we were going to kind of try a new approach for a bit uh, when we come back, which we think might might actually work, uh, uh, might be an improvement. Uh, but we'll see. It would all it would certainly help us with uh, getting through all this material, uh, which is that one of us is going to read the book or books in question. And uh, the other one will not have read it necessarily, although I suppose we might get a few where, you know, one of us read it a long time ago or we just both happen to have read it. But the other one's going to take really take the lead and we'll be synopsizing it and really getting into it and, and talking about uh, what's significant about the book. And so the other will be acting essentially as the viewer who hasn't read the book and will be saying, oh, okay, and we'll be asking questions or interviewing the other. Uh, I think that could be a really effective way of doing it just because... Uh, then we can sort of uh, double our workload in terms of <laughs> reading. And, and it also, it, it kind of invites the, the reader in instead of, uh, we, we have a tendency to talk about it as if, you know, everyone listening has already read the book and uh, this might actually help people, you know, people find their way into the story a bit more. I think. Yeah. And a, a lot of podcasts do this really well. So hopefully we can match that. Like, um, uh, Behind the Bastards is one of my favorite podcasts, and it has mm -hmm. somebody who like often doesn't even know what the topic is going to be coming. Right. Listen yeah, to exactly. another person who did a lot of research and make comments go uh, throughout. So yeah. All right. Very cool. All right, so we're going to uh, wrap it up. Uh, but one last thing: uh, what we're actually going to be doing. Um, 
we are still going to have a couple more fill-in episodes. Uh, we want to do one other quick fill-in episode that we'll probably put up sometime in September, uh, which is going to be about uh, a variety of different uh, short stories involving uh, early visions of space travel, like pre uh, Pre-Victorian, uh, well, uh, different eras. Actually, there's going to be uh, a number of different uh, stories there's, that we'll use. Yeah, uh, uh, let's see what. what is it? Uh, yeah, I, there's there's uh, one from the from the 1940s. There's one from early Victorian era. There's right. one from um, the um, like the 1700s, and uh, yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah, so Actually, we're going to look from the 1700s. Yeah, so we're going to look at there's it's going to be a collection of different stories in a single episode. Uh, so look for that uh, within a month or so. Uh, but the other thing that we're going to do is for our Patreon, for our loyal Patreon subscribers, uh, what we're going to be doing is a series of little mini episodes, uh, which will be going up very shortly uh, or start going up very shortly. Uh, they're going to be you know 10, 15 minutes, little episodes looking at a variety of little short stories. Um, all of which are either by or linked to, uh, by authors or linked to themes that we've already tackled on the show in previous episodes. So, for instance, we're going to look at a Robert E. Howard story. Uh, we're going to look at uh, some of Harlan Ellison's stories. Uh, there's a vampire story. So we're going to do a bunch of these little little shorts, uh, short uh, minisodes. Uh, for Patreon subscribers only. So if you want to listen to those, uh, you should go to our Patreons. Uh, you can go uh, to... Uh, you can just go to Patreon and search for Philip Rice with one L or Adam Prosser with two S's. Uh, the links are on the main site at neversleepsnetwork.com slash series slash what-mad-universe. Uh, but also I think it's Patreon... What's your Patreon link? It's Patreon slash Spearhafok. Is that yours? Uh, yes. But you can also search for Philip Rice. Yeah, if you I go believe. to Philip Rice, yeah, mine is and mine is patreon.com slash phantasmic tales. That's P H A N T A S M I C Tales. T A L E S. Yeah. Um, so my my the the, the link is uh, patreon.com slash S P E A R H A F O C. Right. Yeah. Spear Hafok with an F yeah. is uh Phillips go to, uh, and that is also his name on Twitter, and you can follow me as well on. Oh, uh, um, <laughs> yeah, yeah, uh, Phantasmic Tales on Twitter, uh, or on or at Prankster thirty six. Yes, on about my Twitter because I I hyped that up in the, a lot in the our last episode, or at least right. I, I I mentioned it a bunch. Um, I got banned uh, for the heinous crime of. Uh, <laughs> um, uh, unauthorized use of the Austin Powers theme, which is objectively the funniest reason to get banned from a social media site. Um, I, I, I built up too many copyright strikes for something I did, a bunch of jokes I did like months ago, but they, they all sort of hit at once uh, just two months ago. So um, it was like half a year ago I did like a um, bunch of... Um, you know, the Joker dancing down the steps, but set, I was setting it to different music. Mm-hmm. Um, uh, I also did some of the, the Enterprise theme song, but with different songs in there. Um, yeah. With the the joke in both cases that anything I could think of works better than what they actually went with. Um, <laughs> but, uh, it, yeah, in, I got a lot of copyright strikes for those. Um, and uh, apparently if you get uh, enough of those, they just auto, you know automatically, algorithmically ban you. Um, mm. uh, 
now this has happened to uh, this happened to Todd in the Shadows, who's a, a, a music critic on uh, on YouTube, uh, who has a big following, and he managed to get his account back by uh, uh, contacting a lawyer. I don't really want to do that, um, so I'm just using a second account. Um, and if it gets banned, it gets banned for you know ban evasion. But so far, I've been okay the last two months. Uh, so and what is that? What is that second account? It is Spear Havoc. Uh, Spear Havoc spelled the same with an A at the end. I meant to type in Art, but it didn't accept it for some reason. So just okay. an A. Yeah. So Spear Havoc A is Philip's new uh, yeah. new uh, Twitter handle. Uh, Spear Havoc is still just plain is still taken by somebody who's never tweeted. Yeah. Right. <laughs> And um, I'm uh, Prankster36, as I said. And again, you can. And uh, I actually also have Fantastic Tales as a uh, to promote my comics and uh, artwork, and uh, and this podcast as well. And um, you can also follow us on WM at uh, WMU Podcast. That's uh, the official Twitter handle of this show. So we've got lots of presence on Twitter. Um, and uh, so that is just about it for now. Uh, we will say goodbye once again. I'm Adam Prosser. With me is Philip Rice. We have uh, our producer and engineer is Alex Ross. We want to say thank you to him. And our theme song is by uh, Jack Furick, uh, who is a cool dude. And you can follow him on Twitter as well. Uh, and he uh, he actually he will compose theme songs for your podcast as well. I should mention uh, if anyone's interested in that, he's a he's a good guy. Uh, uh, for money, can, to be clear. For money, yes. He's he not going to do it for for. <laughs> yeah, but he's very affordable. If you want your uh, podcast to have a catchy theme song, uh, look up uh, Jack Furick, and he will uh, he will be there for you. Um, Anyway, so we will resume our slumber for the summer, and we will be back, as I mentioned, uh, within about a month. Uh, so keep watching the space, um, and um, we'll, we'll, I'll put up a little uh, notification preview thing before the actual episode goes up, like a, at least a few days before it goes up, so you can watch for it. Uh, so don't forget to subscribe to our podcast on the RSS feed as well. Um, and uh, those mini-sodes will be up on Patreon. So there is still stuff happening at What Mad Universe before we return in late September or early October. Uh, until then, uh, Acolytes of Adventure, have a good uh, summer, and we will see you soon. Uh, stay groovy, baby? I don't know. No, you you'll get a copyright strike, Phil. <laughs> oh, don't. <laughs> Universal or whatever studio does Austin Powers will be banning our I think it's podcast. Warner Brothers because they appear in it appears in Space Jam 2 apparently uh, <laughs> well who knows they just got it, the rights to everything anyway good night okay. all night <laughs>